Hello and welcome to How AI Built This with me, Liam Wilson. Today's episode of the podcast, uh, like the rest of them, is sponsored by my employers, Cathcart Associates. We're a technology recruitment consultancy headquartered in Edinburgh, uh, working with some of the country's most exciting organisations and tech professionals, covering Scotland, the northwest of England, southwest of England, um, and internationally, um, where they recently opened office in Finland um, and indeed Bangkok in Southeast Asia. So yeah, thanks to them for sponsoring. Um, my guest today is Craig Lynn, uh, co-founder and director of Filament Product Design. As the name suggests, they're a product design company based in Glasgow. Filament have made their name specialising in user-centric IoT and connected hardware products. Um, we'll get into what that actually means on the podcast. We recently got selected by Scottish Enterprise to be part of a small cohort of companies working on tackling the climate crisis by using AI. Um, again, go into much more detail, but very exciting for them. So please welcome the first ever Ouija on the podcast, Craig Lynn. All right, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Good to uh, good to get through to Glasgow for one. We'll kick off with education like we always do, but I think this is the first person that's got a Master of Engineering in Product Design. Um, talk us through that. I mean, I know a bit about what you do now, but what, what does a degree in Product Design look like? Well, it was, a, it was a bit of a strange degree. I think it was the first of its kind within the UK. So it's a, it's a Master's in Product Design Engineering. Um, which effectively was two degrees to, uh, in one. <laughs> That's fun. So it was, yeah, it was a uh, tough five years. Um, but you kind of split your time. You know, you spent uh, half your time up at the Glasgow School of Art doing the product design side. Yeah. You know, you're kind of doing the kind of uh, softer skills, and then you spent your other half doing a kind of masters in mechanical engineering up at Glasgow Uni. And uh, you know they, they they were supposed to chat to each other, but it didn't always happen that way. <laughs> so it was uh, it was tough, um, but it's a it's a great model to be honest because you've got both the kind of technical ability and obviously the kind of design ability. So it means that you know you're you're not coming up with things that aren't feasible, but also you're kind of you're always mindful of the user elements that you kind of need to be careful with. So you've always got really strong UX kind of CX. Yeah, okay, no, that makes sense. Um, I know from speaking to uh, Ewan, who was on the podcast, did mechanical engineering, like there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits from hooking up with people in industry. Did you get a chance to do some of that during the degree? Did you get to speak to companies and put they, some of the skills to yeah, the test? Yeah, they do. I mean, the the GSA part of it's really good. They they often. You know, the first three years you're kind of doing more insular kind of project work uh, to build up your skills, but by the time you get to fourth year, that's when you kind of run a project yourself for the first time. Um, so the, the GSA were always really good at bringing in industrial partners or external people, um, and they would set the challenge, set the brief. I think that was probably one of the, the biggest things that if you started with a blank sheet of paper, then you probably spent about 90% of the project trying to work out what it was you were doing. Yeah, I hated that when they did it. You know, it gave you like too big a brief yeah. that you just didn't know, even know where to go with. And it's just kind of, you get you know, paralysis in terms of choice. You don't want to choose the wrong thing. So, yeah, so you uh, just don't choose anything. Exactly. And then you get two weeks to complete the actual design. So there was a bit of that. But that's why I think they always push to get, you know, companies in so they've run projects with the likes of Airbus um, SPT they've run projects Glasgow City Council um, and it's they're always the ones that are you kind of get the better output when you've actually got a client driving it yeah no definitely I I remember actually I won't name the client uh, but one of my favourite product design stories is a mate of mine um, was in a uni project to help with 
I don't know what the brief was, but basically came up with the you know the shield that protects your pin, so you don't have to put your hand around the ATMs. Yeah, he that was their project. Ah, uh, right. So but, it's probably one of the major aye, cash bank. And you could probably work <laughs> yeah, it out. But uh, <laughs> they, uh, one of the deals they had with the uni, I think, was that if they got any good ideas from it, they they, they just took it. Yeah. Um, so his first big product design project got picked up by a massive company. Was it? Yeah. And then uh, so they use it now, but he's uh, he doesn't he's not in product design anymore, but. Yeah. Uh, I always thought that was probably the downside of having an industry partner is they just get all these ideas for free. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's why they do it. I think that okay, is why they do it, yeah. But what what kind of tends to happen in PD is that the, your kind of fourth or fifth year, so your master's project, your kind of self-led one, yeah. they've always been very good that any IP generated is yours to keep. Yeah. Um, so you know, I've got friends who set up companies based on their, their fourth year project and yeah. now they're a team of 40. Um, I can imagine which is good to see you know so that's about 15 years since graduation and they're doing really well it's been a hard slog to get there but they're they're there um, so there's a lot of spin outs that kind of come from it yeah, yeah I'm sure the unis want spin outs as well because they want to talk about success stories and do they still do um, do they still do that exact degree now you were one of the first they do yeah, they still yeah. Do it, so yeah. I think we were Glasgow University and Glasgow School of Art it was the kind of first joined up product design engineering degree but the, that kind of model is now being copied you know there's um, numerous courses kind of throughout the UK that kind of offer that but it was the, the kind of the original at the time nice uh Obviously, after uni, you go straight into the world of work. Um, you've done a few roles at different agencies, but have they all been yours? They they have been. Aye, uh, so did you know from the start that kind of, or once you'd finished uni, did you think that setting up by yourself was, was the way to go? It was always in the plan at some point. So um, because the because of the kind of the, the PD setup, you know, you're basically a, t- a group of 25, 30 people um, that, pretty much are spending, you know, five days uh, a week together. Um, you know, you go in at the art school where you're in the studio environment. Yeah. So there's just the 30 of you. And then you go up to the university where you're in lectures and there's maybe 150 people. But it was, don't want to say cliquey, but you did kind of stick to your own kind of group. So, um, you know, when it came to the master's year, there was only 10 of us left doing master's. Oh, okay. And myself, uh, Danny and Gregor, who are the co-founders of Filament, you know, we'd always have a pint, we'd always have a chat, you know, throughout uni and art school saying, right, at some point we'll We're come back together and we'll do something. Yeah, whether that was uh, like in an agency or whether it was coming up with our own product idea. Um, but, you know, our, our initial plan was that we would disappear off into graduate schemes with Apple, you know, Amazon, yeah. Jag Land Rover, go and learn something. Um, learn, get some experience, and then five, ten years down the line, catch up and do something. But um, we actually got the opportunity uh, to start uh, our first agency um, pretty much the day after we graduated, and we thought, oh, Jesus Christ, we'll give it a go. There's uh, nothing to lose, to be honest. You know, we didn't have mortgages, we didn't have families at the time, so That's what the what's best, the worst that can happen? The best time you get a lot of lessons, isn't right. it? So it was quite strange. It was kind of going from the art school environment into an engineering office where the three of us had pretty much three desks and three laptops and no idea what to do next. But uh, no, it was good. We kind of we grew that over five years and then uh, kind of decided to, to kind of spin out into filament after that. Was it, was it a go straight from because yeah, there's like that one and then it spun out into what you're doing now. So it did. Um, uh, so has it just been the three of you continuously. Pretty much, Since yeah. then, pretty much. Yeah, so the our previous um, agency was part of a kind of larger engineering group. Okay. And um, one of the, the kind of larger companies within that group got bought out. 
so that was a kind of natural split point in terms of the, the group splitting up and yeah. you know we decided to you know well for the first agency because we thought let's give it a bash you know what's the worst that can happen <laughs> um, we were also quite naive students and we gave away the kind of majority shareholding in day one so I was going to ask you about stuff yeah. like that so I mean obviously I didn't know that part but was there a bit of a was that kind of a constant learning curve for the first five, six years because it definitely was. nobody I, teaches you when you're doing a product design engineering degree that you need to worry about your shares and yeah. like, I don't know, like pension and savings and office space and corporation tax and like just like all the stuff that you just don't really get taught. No, no, it was 100% that. It was, you know, as I said, we had one client day one and then we had to learn everything from how to run the company, how to manage the finances, um, how to find new business. You know, we yeah, that's were, another thing no one gets taught. Exactly, yeah. So we were kind of coming out as the the new kids in the block, um, going up against competitors that had graduated from PDE, you know, five, ten years prior. They had much more experience. So uh, Probably had a marketing team and... They, some some sort of sales I, function. Yeah, but I mean, it was good because we, we just went in, we could have used the design mindset and we just tried things and whatever worked we stick with, whatever didn't work we you know, we mixed it up and tried something new. But uh, now looking back now, uh, I, I, I don't know why people gave us business. I think it was that kind of like <laughs> youthful, <laughs> I don't know, uh, excitement. Was but, there a bit about that you just did loads of stuff that you liked doing though? Because when it's only the three of you, like, I'm sure you took on some really shit jobs, but I'm sure there was lots of projects that maybe other people didn't fancy or you guys just really like just had a passion for it, so just cracked on I with think it. so. I think it was the passion that probably kind of won us the projects. You know, I think that we we hadn't been kind of like tired by the industry yet, so we were coming in and we were approaching every project You know, with... Most enthusiastic pitch. Yeah, enthusiastic, curious, yeah. wanting to do things slightly different. Um, and I think that's the one thing that's kind of stayed with us through the years is that we do we do kind of push innovation. You know, we never want to work on something that's like a me too. Yeah. You know, we always want to do something a bit different, whether that's with the, the way we've designed it, whether it's the interaction, whether it's the technology we use, or if it's the, the, kind of the business model that the product fits within. You know, we have always kind of pushed things to, to be that a little bit uh, different, a little bit kind of you know, stand out on the market. Yeah, be one of the first rather than just do the next thing. It's exactly. a really good example of that. It's probably a similar story, but there's a um, marketing kind of agency for lack of a better word in Edinburgh that was started off just two guys and uh, they've ended up working with some massive clients like Innes and Gunn and a few other big guys because they went into all these pitches against these when I mean, you see the marketing company some of the Mad Men days yeah. um, been around for 60, 70 years and these guys were coming in and just like passion for certain projects and also did things that they maybe wouldn't so picked on picked up little projects that they didn't maybe they wouldn't typically do as a marketing agency but they just wanted to do it mm-hmm. and on the back of that they've won some huge clients and it's just a small company like down at the shore in Leaf with oh, I think a handful of people yeah. um, so yeah no, it's a studio or something so yeah. there's a couple of guys in there that kind of know from various friends of friends um, but I love some of the stuff they put on for like marketing and stuff like that um, I think that's quite important because they're putting out things that interest them yeah so naturally you've got that kind of enthusiasm about it yeah you know so I think that's kind of similar to what we did we, we've kind of got to the point where we kind of want to have our voice heard a bit more in terms of what our opinion is on designs 
and kind of doing that for clients all the time yeah. kind of is slightly restrictive because you're doing the best project for them, yeah. the best job for them to make them a return. Um, so that's kind of one thing that we, we wanted to switch up when we changed agencies yeah. to Filament. We wanted to kind of work on our, our own products and own IP and do a, a bit of that all alongside the consultancy model. Yeah, that makes sense. And did you, has there ever been times where, I think this is like interesting when you do like the consultancy or agency piece, like, has there ever been times where you've had to be quite strong with clients and like really tell them that the best way to do it is actually the way that you guys have pitched it rather than them trying to meddle into it? Like, are you quite strong with that? Yeah, you kind of need to manage expectations and manage, you know, uh, the clients a lot of the time. And again, that's one yeah. of the kind of softer skills that you don't necessarily learn at yeah. art school. You know, there's, you, you can understand personalities and you understand kind of what they're looking to get out of it. Sometimes for the startups, it's it's an itch that they want to scratch. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot other times, you know, you're kind of trying to, to manage egos of a larger company that are trying to, you know, just basically get themselves up the ladder internally. Yeah. So sometimes the they kind of their required output is slightly different from the success of the product. If you get me. Yeah. No, that makes um, sense. So it's a kind of understanding that, and then basically changing the way you approach the the kind of product you know sometimes you need to um take your ego out of it and yeah. that the okay you might have done all the work and came up with all the, the interesting innovations within the product but if the client thinks they did it you let them have it yeah if they're paying for it it's all right exactly yeah um no that makes a lot of sense and again it's a good point you don't get taught like what people might call like stakeholder management but just yeah. basically like client relationships whether that be your current client future client internal clients there's loads of stuff you just don't really get taught. Um, we're going to get onto some more of the data stuff just now because I know people will be like, what is this? <laughs> what has this got to do with AI? Uh, but in between some of this, so between your agencies and setting up filament and all that, you ended up back doing some work for the Glasgow School of Art. Is that just something, is that a bit of a passion project for you to do some kind of lecture and some research? It kind of was, yeah. It was um, about keeping close links with uh, the PDE course. Um, from looking at it from like a you know, recruitment kind of hiring point of view, because, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if we are, if each cohort is only about thirty students. Yeah, and you said only ten did a masters as well. Exactly. So. Yeah. So we're we're basically you know if we want to can hire the best um, graduating student, then we're coming up against the likes of grad schemes with Dyson, Jag Land Rover that can a obviously huge, huge pay names. probably twenty twenty five percent more than what we can salary wise. Yeah. So. Um, you know, it was always good for us to kind of keep in spot the spot the kind of good talent early. Um, you know, get them in as interns. You know, show them the kind of agency life and that they can they can be working on a kind of broader range of things as opposed to just designing you know one tiny piece of plastic that ends up in a Hoover somewhere that <laughs> no one actually gets to see. So, um, so we kind of it was partly to yeah keep involved with the course and just spot the talent come through. But yeah. it was it was also quite nice to, to kind of build some of my skills as well in terms of you know kind of the lecturing the you know kind of the education parts of it. Well, you know, it's great. Um, and it's good that they still I suppose get people like you involved as well so sometimes I think when you are at university it might be different for like PD stuff but you kind of felt that a lot of the lecturers were all kind of like theory based and maybe had yeah. been out of the game we had a great guy at um, Heriot Watt that was a brilliant marketing lecturer and really knew marketing agencies inside and out and part of his course was coming up with briefs and he would he would show you how he would do it and you could tell he'd probably done it at a really high level but mm. also he'd been in it academia for so long that you did have this lingering doubt whether or not 
does some of this stuff actually work? Aye. Um, whereas you're obviously still working here and have went into owning your own agency or multiple agencies and then you're doing a bit of the kind of theory stuff as well. So it's a bit maybe a bit more relatable for them. I think so. I think it was good to kind of show them the progression that they could have, you know, from graduating that they had options. Um, I think they kind of, they, when you look at the PDE graduates over the years, you know, that they are at the tops of most tech companies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, in terms of what kind of skill sets they're using and what they're actually doing, some of them are out-and-out designers. Some of them are just doing the kind of user research parts of it. Yeah. Others are at the other end of the spectrum, just looking at kind of detail and engineering and manufacture. So I think for me it was always quite good to kind of sit them down, certainly at the kind of the third-year level, and just say, listen, you know, like... PD goes from initial sketch all the way through to landing product and testing product, but you don't need to do all that. Yeah. What are you interested in? Uh, what, what part what, do you yeah, like? Yeah, exactly, and try to kind of like you know show them that there's different kind of paths for that. So I think that always can help them out. Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, we touched upon starting filament. So you said it was kind of a natural split point for the three of you guys to just separate and be your own agency yeah. again. Um, what was what was the kind of plan setting it up? Was there a, I mean, I'll jump on straight to the next point, but you've kind of become known now for Internet of Things and connected hardware expertise. Was that part of the plan or was that just something that happened by chance? Um, it kind of probably happened not by chance, but it was, as I said, we were always pushing for new innovation, new interactions. Um, so... What we kind of tend to do with it, we always look at using new technology yeah. in ways that are beneficial to the user. So we've never liked this tech for tech sake approach. So you know, okay, well, what's available? Right, let's do this project in AI yeah. because it's interesting. Yeah. We always start with the user need. You know, what is the user's problem here? Right, let's use the internet of things. Let's use AI. Let's use you know physical product to kind of augment and help that interaction. Yeah. Um, so that's something that we always we always pushed. Um, you know, we, when we started filament, it was more of a kind of generalist agency um, where we were doing bits of everything. Um, what we decided to do about eighteen months ago is kind of sit down, um, you know, take the foot off the pedal slightly, and kind of look at the strategy and look at where we want to go with the with, with filament with the agency. And you know, we kind of plotted all the the projects that we would worked on. We plotted the ones that we really enjoyed working on and the ones that we felt kind of had um, more of an opinion, more of a kind of design language, were more innovative, and it just happened to be that the kind of common thread was in this kind of connectivity. Yeah. Um, so it was you know, using the technology to better the customer relationship and engagement, um, and that's at that point in time was when we kind of decided to change the message slightly. Yeah, yeah okay. And where do you guys come into it when there is like, a, like an AI-focused project or something around kind of data generally like where, where do filament come into it yeah, we, can, we can do bits of, of I guess both sides of the spectrum you know we come in early from a strategy point of view to look at what is the what's the strategy why are you generating data what value is this data going to have yeah um, and then we come in at the end of the how do we visualize that data and communicate that back to the user in the best way possible so that's um, why you're saying the so user 
from the strategy, like why are you doing it, yeah. all the way to actually communicating it to them. Aye, because what you find is you, you know they find a lot of people kind of jumping on certainly the kind of the IoT bandwagon. Yeah, and they start putting sensors in, start generating data, and they've got this big dashboard that's got you know forty different data sets and graphs. And, yeah. and then you look at it at the end and you say right, okay, what's actually important to you? What's that one in the middle? Yeah. Right, well, why are we generating data for the rest of them? Just strip all just that out. Just give it Exactly. Well, either automate it through AI, or strip it out because it's not needed. Yeah, I always wonder how much of the kind of like, I think the smart home stuff's a great example. Like there's a lot of noise in this kind of smart oh, totally. home market. Right. But there must be a reason that it's really, there's really low adoption rates. Yeah. Like you either get the top end of the spectrum, and there was a guy I met recently that had pretty much rewired his whole house. So it was uh, like everything was smart basically. And then there's people like my parents who, I mean, they've just graduated to an Alexa. Mm. But they're never going to have like the smart light switches and all the kind of connected devices in the whole house. Like they're just not going to do. Yeah. It. So like there must there there must be a point where uh, there's a, there's something missing from the strategy or the early research. Oh, that, totally. That's yeah. stopping that exploding. I would have thought maybe I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, I just like think that's maybe one of those things where people have seen some success from maybe Amazon or Google or whatever and like everyone's just jumped a lot of people on jumping it. on the kind of me yeah. too type thing as opposed yeah. to looking at you know first principles why you're actually doing something. Yeah. I guess like that's you know like we we kinda of see that the role of the designer is kinda of shifting mm. certainly over the past, you know, five, ten years. You know, the, when you look back into the, the kind of eighties and nineties, you know, the product designer was almost like your kind of rock star designers like Philippe Stark and it was, you know, they were you were buying the kind of label the yeah. same way that you buy a fashion label. Yeah. So, you know, um, and then, it, you know, probably 90s, 2000s, the kind of product designers kind of were not forgotten, but everyone moved into app development. Yeah, okay. So a lot of product design graduates would then take their skills and go and develop kind of UI, UX for apps. Um, makes sense and what we've found is it's almost coming back in a full circle now so with things like AI, ML, IoT the, the product designer there has a bit more of a, a kind of overseeing um, role within that they're yeah. not necessarily designing all the detail but they're looking from a user experience point of view what are all the touch points within each of those different kind of technologies Yeah. Okay. and it's, uh, it's the kind of the designer's role to kind of manage that like I always remember at art school, like one kind of lecture that stuck with me was um, there was a, a, a kind of piece by a French philosopher or something like that, and this is in like second or third year. So you know we've just came out of a, a mechanical engineering lecture on <laughs> you know like dynamics basically doing, and we get handed this piece of literature, and we're like, what the hell is going on? Um, but it always stuck with me because it was like describing this example of a. A hotel in Paris and it's got a doorman there that's opening and shutting the door letting yeah. people in and it's kind of saying that you know like the doorman gets replaced by a door closer so it's this how you use technology to basically take you know, medial jobs away from yeah. people um, but the thing that was discussing is that in the same way that the doorman might be kind of um, you know like not might not like old people uh, for instance so he doesn't open the door for them he doesn't help them out in the same way that if you design the door closer that the the force required to open it is too high, then yeah. you're also discriminating against a user set. So it's kind of saying about the kind of the designer, you can embody a product yeah. with your prejudices basically, and you are kind of like the what you think of the world, which might not necessarily be 
right. So they're you know looking at it from like an inclusive design point of view. You yeah. should design a product to be inclusive across a broad range of spectres, not just because of your experience of the world. Yeah. Um, and I feel that's kind of can be applied to AI machine learning because if you're developing an algorithm that's based upon your experiences then it might also have some of the the negative elements of your personality in it as well. Oh, 100%. Also, there's like, it's kind of related, but the famous example of Amazon's recruitment system that they spent God knows how much on. And there was a, it ended up being an incredibly biased algorithm because all of the data I had, well, not all of it, but a huge chunk of the data I had was the successful hires they made were white men. Right. So the training data right. was based upon was based upon loads of white men getting jobs. Yeah. So the diversity part of it was just unconsciously biased. Yeah. Um, so they had the system that basically didn't work, and that probably comes back to the designing of the system. Like, why were they doing it? What were they trying to achieve? Yeah. And it, I suppose there's a lot of like it's quite early stages, so there's a lot of things where there'll be mistakes made. Um, but I remember there was a talk I went to about the McDonald's. Um, like ordering system all being based on like data and then now you just do it by yourself kind of thing mm-hmm. and apparently they hesitated on bringing it out because they didn't want to be seen of like getting rid of jobs right okay where in reality they've just made other they've just made different jobs yeah um, so they're kind of like moving along with the technology as well yeah. yeah I don't don't be frightened of it um, everyone always asks me when I'm doing like if I do anything uh, at the meetups we do or um, clients who are new to machine learning they'll always ask like well, what, what jobs are going to go first and all this kind of yeah. stuff I don't know if like other than maybe what you mentioned earlier kind of like fairly menial jobs where maybe they just don't need that that person at that level but it's just going to create opportunities oh, totally. I yeah. would have thought especially if it was designed properly yeah and I think that's uh, as long as it's designed properly and as long as it you know has the right personality because you know, products have personality, AIs yeah. have personality. Yes, yeah. it's, it's dependent on the person that created them effectively. Yeah. So you know, it's like if you if you look at um, the autonomous cars, right? So everyone drives a certainly different way. So are you going to have that? Are your like autonomous BMWs going to drive in a slightly different <laughs> way to your Volvos? You know, <laughs> is everyone in a BMW going to be an arsehole? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I never thought about that. I was thinking from an autonomous point of view, it would be good to have a more like standardised set of driving because yeah. there's so many idiots. But at the same time... But also then, if you're a passenger and you're used to driving a certain way, you're going to get frustrated. Yeah. So if you're like a, a you know 85-year-old that doesn't like going over 25 miles an hour, yeah. then they're going to be terrified in an autonomous vehicle. That's so like, they're going the speed limit. Exactly, yeah. And this was the other way around. The people that drive too fast, they'll be wondering why they're only going 70 on the yeah. bypass. Um so yeah, it's an interesting thing because like, do you, well, you have different types of AI and different personalities that you interact with. I, but the way I imagine it is just from a really simplistic point of view, where you just see it in the like futuristic films where everyone's just driving at the same speed, yeah. the same rules. It just kind of like it's all about. I, I mean, I can't say I'm buzzing to be in driverless cars if it does happen in our lifetimes. That I quite like driving. Ah, I see. I like switching off when I'm driving. Yeah, yeah but it, it takes it away a little bit. But I suppose the whole point is that it might take away accidents, but they're still trying to work out what happens with accidents and whose fault is it and Aye. how do they prevent them and th- I feel like we're still so far away from some of that um, which again is one of the reasons I quite like chatting people like you where some of the projects you're doing are already doing some really cool stuff mm-hmm. and it's working rather than everything you just see that might happen in 20 years time Aye, it's all very theoretical still yeah and like driverless cars is a great example because it would be obviously it would be class 
and it'd be quite cool. And I think um, someone was telling me that Uber are pretty much hanging their hat on being profitable by the time there's driverless cars because <laughs> you'll literally just Uber everywhere and not, not have a need for your own car. Yeah. Um, but we're still so far away from that, whereas a lot of this stuff's actually happening. I think that's always the, like, companies like ourselves are always doing the, the increments, the incremental th- elements of it. So it might not seem as being massively innovative, yeah. but you're taking the steps to get there. Effectively, so when you can look at it from like a you know a decade vision, you see all right, okay, then we're going to have you know nanotechnology, we're going to have more biohacking, we're going to have driverless cars. But what's happening right now is that startups and companies are taking the first step to that. Yeah, and you need to do that. Yeah, to get. I mean, we've had such like an acceleration in technology. Aye. I mean, I think I said this before. I think it was on the podcast, but I was of I'm of an age like so. I'm thirty this year, and we were probably the last group that kind of like technology was just starting to seep in like when I was like finishing primary school starting high school so like there was no iPhones at that yet so like iPhones was I think when I started school I started uni Um, so we were the last set of folk that weren't like full tech natives like we were probably on the cusp like everyone my age knows how all these things work and keep a keen interest on it in comparison to like the older generation but after that it's just been constant. Like yeah. all these, all these people are just so used to everything that's there now that, like, the thought of driverless cars and all that, you almost don't even bat an eyelid anymore. Aye. You're like, all right, that might happen pretty soon. And it seems as if it's speeding up, as you say, because it's Aye. like you know, for a decade, almost like felt as if the only development was things were getting smaller and faster. Whereas yeah, the iPhone been... just kept getting smaller. Now it's actually getting bigger. Um, Whereas now it seems as if there's going to be kind of quite larger steps in terms of technology over the next yeah. like, couple of years. You know? Uh, well, I, I totally agree, but we also talked, to, I don't know who this was with, I'm sure it was one of the podcasts with, about like not even driverless cars, just getting electric cars on the road. Because mm, that, that seems almost like it's a task that's never going to work. Yeah. I don't mean never going to work, cause, like, it just feels like the technology is going to, it's just hard. I think it's a, it's an infrastructure problem as well. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, and it has to be kind of driven for at the kind of political scale yeah. to kind of do that. You know, we have kind of worked with you know, various electric car type peripheral companies um, and they all seem to be kind of gearing up and you know, basing themselves on getting a large public tender coming through which is yeah. then going to pay the bills so yeah, yeah. I've read somebody talking about hydrogen cars are going to potentially replace electric yeah. if they get that right so you just it's one of those things that you just have to keep doing what you're doing just now um, before we move on to a couple of more recent things is there anything any like projects or things you've been involved in with the kind of IOT and connected stuff that I suppose you can talk a little bit more about it from your involvement um, yeah I mean it's, it's quite kind of vast in terms of what we work on so uh, you know if you've got one like uh, what's the word like a kind of flagship project that, or most proud project that you've done I think the uh, the self-service coffee machine for um, Matthew Algae was probably kind of one of them I was uh, telling somebody about this so yeah, so they're starting to roll it out now within Marks and Spencers throughout the UK. Yes, so, that was what you told yeah. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're starting to bump into them in the wild, which is always nice as a kind of designer is to actually see, see you know, what something you that's there. Yeah, and people interacting with it. So what do they do? So they basically um, Matthew Alge, a kind of Glasgow-based coffee roaster, yeah. and one of their kind of key clients was Marks and Spencers. Um, so they provide all the beans to Marks and Spencers cafes and stores. Yeah. Um, 
they obviously the Costa came out with their own self-service machine, yeah, which yeah. was in garages and kind of dotted up and down the country. And kind of Marks and Spencer's kind of wanted a, a kind of piece of that action, basically. Um, problem with most um, self-service machines is that they produce a terrible cup of coffee. Now I tell you the main problem. Coffee snob. Oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. The main problem with Costa machines is you know when you're going into one that doesn't get cleaned. Oh, totally. There was a Tesco right. near my old flat, and you'd walk in and Jesus, they, they needed some like bleach down. That thing. Yeah. So that's I actually got put off ever ordering coffee from there. One because I'm a massive coffee snob, and two because I just didn't uh, the quality of it. I just couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't even bear to think how mega that milk going? container was. Aye. And I've seen them getting filled when you go into garages and they just have a six big pints of milk and yeah. just chuck it on chuck top of the other milk. Basically, like how long? Uh, yeah, too many questions to answer. Yeah. Well, that was kind of one of the big things that we wanted to. You know, okay, it was a bit of a me too yeah. uh, device, but we wanted to do it better and different. So we wanted to kind of use technology to make it better. So at the time, the cost machines weren't using fresh milk. Yeah, okay. um, so that was a kind of starting point. We wanted to use a proper Scandinavian coffee machine yeah. in terms of doing the grinding. Are they the best the Scandinavian? This one was, I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something like six grand. So yeah, okay. you know that you're going to a self-service machine and there is a £6,000 coffee machine and behind that yeah, that's yeah, actually yeah. doing the, the kind of like coffee making. Um, ah, it's not just like ground up coffee that's just getting spat exactly. out. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the, so yeah, we kind of started off, we picked the, you know, our kind of goal was to make a kind of barista style cup of coffee from a machine yeah. and the, everything from the interaction and going over, buying it, getting it, drinking it, kind of had to have that quality and feel to it yeah okay um, makes sense what, for MS as well because they've got that premium feel it as does, well aye, it does and but one of the kind of things that we we kind of found out early on was um you know like, we always employ that kind of user-centric approach and sometimes it's easy to just think about the kind of one user group yeah the customer but the most important thing in this was the service engineer and the maintenance yeah okay because these things have got ground coffee beans chocolate dust and fresh milk so they uh, are a nightmare to clean yeah so we kind of designed it in a way that this thing was modular it was on an internal kind of system that it could slide out you could yeah. access everything um, so if and when this thing had problems then it was easy to get in clean and maintain it yeah clean the place whatever yeah. like it was it was easy enough to do and then what we kind of do is you know it doesn't a lot of people think of IoT and you think of a small box in the room with sensors and yeah. data. Well, the coffee machines were uh, connected, basically. Yeah. So they were um, internet connected. It was sending real-time sales telemetry back. It was looking at kind of predictive maintenance sensors, um, That's basically. Really so you were able to detect like when this thing was going to need maintained. I spot problems before they start. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing that the, a lot of IoT that we work on is, is hidden. And yeah. it's not necessarily... Um, what you would kind of class as a, an IoT type sensor it's yeah. using the connectivity to make the, the interaction better I think the real time is the biggest thing for them or like the predictive stuff like yeah. we've looked at like on a slightly larger scale in terms of like um, manufacturing but some of the clients we work with have brought in house some machine learning skills and some data analytics skills so they can like predict when they're massive like site off in the middle of nowhere where there's no connectivity they can predict when those machines are maybe going to break and potentially save them millions of pounds and like they're not actually doing very much but it's the real time element of it where they can kind of look at it a little bit further ahead of time or whatever and just like make sure these things are working I mean you go into some of the garages where there's other coffee machines and like they'll just have out of order signs on for weeks whereas I'm sure there's an element of that this won't happen with these Um, how did you decide this is probably nothing to do with anything but how did you decide like how much those things could store 
in is terms of the like kind of the, capacity. Yeah, like the coffee beans, the yeah. milk. Like what, what, was there an optimal amount, or was it, it just whatever you could based fit Based on discussions with the uh, with the kind of the end customer. Yeah. So it was kind of looking at it. Okay, how how often are you able to maintain this? Yeah. Um, like, and there is quite a lot of kind of empty space within these machines. You know, they yeah. are they're about what taller than me about six three or something like that tall you know they are fairly chunky yeah um, so you do have quite a lot of room within it so you could have increased the capacity but then you're probably not getting as fresh a cup of coffee so yeah. it's that kind of balance basically the best uh as i said i much prefer going to a nice coffee shop but there was um when i was in australia there's 7-eleven on every corner and uh, there's a one dollar coffee machine <laughs> one of the best well not one of the best it's the best instant coffee i've ever had really what oh. one dollar a little machine that definitely didn't get cleaned um and definitely wasn't connected but uh i don't know how they could charge a dollar but it was uh it was brilliant if you're ever just like walking past and you just needed a coffee like it was better than going into a big chain nice. um, <laughs> if you could i mean when you're in australia you can find like nice coffee pretty easily but um, yeah it's one of those I've never really understood how they managed to do it yeah. a lot of um, coffee innovation seems to come out of Australia New Zealand it seems to just, I think it's a culture like uh, obviously the weather's good but you go to like Italy or whatever and like they're all they all just sit and drink like espressos mm. all day whereas like in Melbourne or Wellington where we were for a bit like you're just sitting a, you sit in a coffee shop for two or three hours Right. order one cup of coffee and just sit and watch the world go by a little bit whereas here it's a bit more like it's a bit more instant isn't it like you grab it you go ah, you, can, you, you, don't, you don't really do a huge amount of sitting you actually feel bad as well once you, if you've brought your laptop in a coffee shop like in Glasgow or Edinburgh like once you finish your first cup like I always start feeling a bit edgy like if I should order something else <laughs> like it's just like I should probably just leave like I'm just using their wifi like you just feel like a bit of a dick so I think they just have that mentality over there and um, I think Sweden as well we've got a couple of Swedes in the office yeah. and they're, they're, it's like six seven cups of coffee a day and like in, I think over in Sweden they have like an actual break in the mid-morning where you all get coffee and a snack a proper coffee break like you yeah. Actually, yeah you actually have a coffee break like yeah. you, there's no questions asked like that's you go and spend however long it is 15 minutes half an hour um, so I think that's maybe where some of that comes from um, so yeah you said that they're in stores so you've managed to kind of they play, are play yeah them. so it's quite it's nice um because, you know, you spend so long on a project like that, um, coming up with the concepts and then getting the prototypes. And when it gets to the manufacturer stage, that's kind of when it's out your hand. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I think they ran a trial. There was two in Glasgow and one in London. Nice. Um, so, you know, you were getting messages from one of our ex-designers who moved down to London, took a photo of them standing Send next, next to Send it next to that's yeah. amazing. So it's, it's, it's always kind of good to see that um, the thing, you know, basically sees the light of day in the end because there's so many projects you work on that I was about to ask so like is there a, there must be that massive buzz when you see something in, in the wild like you said but is there a frustration or do you just have to get over it in this job that sometimes you'll design something that might be shit hot but the client doesn't use it in the end or there's a huge change in the project so you just can't ever see it yeah there's a lot of that and so, a lot of it comes down to funding to be honest it's um, certainly the kind of funding ecosystem um, within the UK is very different to that of you know San Francisco yeah. uh, where people throw money at projects I was going to say there's no funding in San Francisco there's just a big empty like black hole Aye. of money <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but you know you can go you know if you're over in San Fran you've basically got the right team you're doing something interesting within a kind of new emerging space you're going to be able to raise and you're going to be able to raise decent enough cash to see you through whereas yeah. over here it seems to be a bit more bootstrapped um, so there's a lot of that yeah a lot of the stars we work with like I've 
spoken to a few of them about this, like investment's quite hard over here. It's quite London centric. I don't okay. know if you've noticed that. But there's the other element where San Fran and like even other places in America now, there's almost like a obviously this is not what they do, they're all very qualified. But there's almost like a throw enough money and see what happens. There is Whereas yeah. here I feel like you have to have like the idea, you have to bootstrap it a little bit, mm-hmm. you have to have a client on board that's maybe an M and S or whatever and a decent sized team and then you pitch for the investment and you might get half of what you asked yeah, for. Yeah. Whereas I feel like you can go two or three steps back. It's a risk thing. I think that just, it's, it's kinda I don't know if there's like a fear of missing out type thing with investors over in the valley, but they, Maybe. Do, they do just basically, they'll take higher risks. Yeah. We imagine you were the guy that missed out on investing in Facebook oh, or totally. yeah. Snapchat yeah. or You WhatsApp. only do that like, once. And then you, you do start, it once yeah. and then you start just throwing yeah, cash about and hoping for the best. Yeah. Um, before we get on to more recent uh, kind of AI project that you're involved in, um, it would be remiss not to mention the best tech meetup name I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, I was actually telling somebody in England about this, they didn't get it. Uh, so you guys at Filament run a it's just a, it's a general tech meetup rather than product it's uh I would say it kind of combines the kind of creative sector and tech sector nice so it brings them together yeah. that's quite important as well we probably won't get into it just now but there's probably quite a, still quite a big disconnect between creative and tech there right? is I and, and I think I feel like there shouldn't be background in PDE we've always straddled that yeah. so I think that was kind of one of the kind of key drivers for Silicon Swally so yeah. like no that's right I'm glad you said it as well because Swally just sounds better with a slightly <laughs> west accent but yeah no Silicon Swally what a name um, I've seen a few people trying to riff off on like Silicon um, so there's like Silicon Glen in Scotland Silicon Roundabout is it Uh, Silicon Roundabout in London? Roundabout or like Silicon Milk Roundabout none of it really works because you're just you're just chucking the word Silicon in there because everyone knows of Silicon Valley whereas it just went full on and stuck in a Scottish word in there um, <laughs> for drinking as well it's even better well to be honest I came up with the idea when I was over in San Francisco no so way I was, uh, I was over there about five six years ago it was part of the you know, We Are The Future um, oh yeah, 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 yeah taking over uh, I know those Bruce Walker and the team yeah I know those guys yeah so it was um, there was one afternoon where we, can, uh, we didn't have any meetings on uh, me and Ross one of the guys there found ourselves down by the water having a few beers uh, having a swally uh, having a swally <laughs> having a chat and just chatting about how things over there were done properly you go to a, a, an event over there and there's a world class speaker oh, every time people are gen, generally interested in like looking at collaboration whereas over here you can often play avoid the accountant you know basically when you Aye. go to events and you just you're trying to find the interest in people in the room they don't always exist and then even when they do there's a little bit of a keeping it to yourself mentality we don't want to talk about what we're doing we don't want to you know, collaborate. We don't want to, you know, like give away IP or discuss IP with people that might be able to help us. So yeah. I guess it's a risk thing. It's similar. I totally get it. And like, there's an element of like, you don't want to tell someone the next big idea and then it gets ripped yeah. off of that. But I think the chances of that happening versus the chances of meeting a pretty valuable connection Aye. are, the, the scale is just incredible. Like exactly. You're, you're going to meet somebody useful at most meetups. And obviously there's enough meetups now to go to every night of the week. I mean, Edinburgh's ridiculous. Yeah. But, if you hone in on what you're looking for, then you'll get something from it. Um, and, and Scotland's tiny, so yeah. like, you know, you, for us to know compete, we need to collaborate more, and we need Aye. to kind of work together more, and go after the bigger fish as opposed to be fighting over the one in their own point. Ah, exactly, and if you can team up with somebody that you meet at Silicon Swally or get somebody over to speak that yeah. fosters another relationship, but they remember that it was filming that put it on, like there's all these little benefits that, I suppose the problem with it is you don't see quite a lot of it, um, you, you don't, but I mean, for us it was important with when we changed the kind of new strategy and we were looking at the connectivity, 
we kind of had to look at it from not only a product point of view but a community point of view yeah we kind of want to join the dots more and we want to kind of pull together a bit of a community of like-minded people yeah and that's kind of where the, the kind of the idea came from i mean it did it started off as a pun five years ago and <laughs> it was something that we always came back to yeah we were like right we need to do something i think i registered the url about six years ago and i've been paying for like for, paying for every month for ages much, yeah so when we moved into the new studio we kind of we had a kind of launch party in here and we thought Aye. The space actually works really well, so um, ended up spoke to Creative Scotland um, and managed to get some lottery funding through them. That's so class. They've funded something called Swally. It's is excellent to have to say. <laughs> That's a claim of fame Testament right to them, but yeah, I mean our kind of our mission is that we kind of bring together the kind of best creative and tech minds. And we, you know, look at different collaborations with kind of craft beer catalysts. So that's the kind of the tagline. So it's about getting people in the room, yeah, you know, drinking some good beer and listening to some good speakers and seeing what comes of it. And is there, a, is there like a theme for each one? That's the plan. Yeah. yeah. So of each one, what we do is we get a different kind of creative on board yeah. to give it its own visual identity. Yeah. And we theme it, and then we get kind of different speakers in. So the first one was themed um, physical digital convergence. Yeah. So we had um, a great artist called Brendan Dawes, who is just unbelievable. He kind of works a lot within the kind of the grey space between analogue and digital. Yeah, okay. And creates kind of artwork um, based on that. That's so class. He's been doing a lot of actually kind of, um, you can know, generative art lately, which yeah, yeah. is really nice. Um, and then we had um, a guy from IBM Watson and yeah, yeah. talking about kind of more of um, you know, how to kind of apply you know, AI in a kind of larger scale. Um, what we've done for the one that's on Thursday this week. Is was it this week? This week, yeah. Oh, Thursday night. Right. Actually, I'm going to have to get this out. Either ASAP or we'll say it was in February. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a week in February. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, so what's the second theme? It's uh, Glasgow 2030. So we decided we kind of wanted to put a bit of a kind of futurist spin on it. So we've got a kind of um, London futurist um, who's done did things with you know Huffington Post, Wired magazine coming up to give us the kind of general trend technology trends of the decade. Um, but what we've also done is we've pulled in five kind of local. Uh, artists, designers, um, creatives, and they're going to present a quick five-minute vision of what they think Glasgow should be in ten years' time. Nice. So we've kind of got a mixture of you know architects, uh, service designers, um, strategists, people working within the tech space. So it'll be interesting to see what they kind of um, potentially terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> depends on what they come up with. And that sounds like a class idea. Um, and is a, how many are you planning on doing? Is it a monthly, quarterly? It's a quarterly thing quarterly. right now, yeah. So we've kind of, we've got the, the funding to run it to the end of the year. Um, the last one is around about the same time as the COP26. So nice. we were kind of looking at doing something quite interesting for that. And then I think we'll probably, we'll definitely carry on next year. Um, but we might change the format slightly. Yeah. I suppose it's the fun of organising something you can do yourself. Um all right, so makes sense to finish off on something that was announced pretty recently. So, um, you guys are going to partner up with um, Arceptive, yes, a tech company in Glasgow, uh, and your project's been well, it's one of six, right, that Scottish Enterprise are going to run with. Is that fair? Yeah, um, they chose I think six from a couple of hundred applicants Jesus. to be on the phase one of this project and then it will go down to three of the six for phase two. Nice. And then the whole project's around I suppose essentially using AI to try and tack, tackle what is now a pretty prominent theme of a climate crisis. 
How did, I suppose, how did it come about from your guys' point of view? And then obviously, feel free to tell us a bit about the project as well. Um, well, it's quite interesting because it's probably something that we we may have seen but wouldn't have applied for it. Um, yeah. Just because you know, AI is not something we tend to kind of deal with. It, it tends to be brought in to, to support physical product we're developing yeah. as opposed to that being the focus on the project. Yeah, okay. um, but we were actually we were approached by um, the Richard from Scottish Enterprise who was running it and it just so happens to be that Richard studied PD at oh, nice. Glasgow School of Art. So I think he was three or four years below us. Um, yeah. And he was quite keen to, to speak to companies like ourselves to see if, if someone could approach it with a bit of a uh, you know, kind of design thinking mindset on it. So as opposed, you know, doing it from a user point of view as opposed to doing a tech-led point of view. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, he, was, he kind of made us aware of it and then we decided to sit down with Stefan and the team at Arceptive to, to kind of come up with a couple of concepts of what we could submit for it. So um, the project we're doing and was successful for phase one is... Um, it's kind of been rebranded, but the, the idea was at the time a kind of heat view type thing. So it's using thermal imaging cameras to capture heat loss within domestic houses um, in a kind of street view type model. Yeah. So the idea being that it's not like a, a one-hit survey. This thing is happening um, more periodically, so you can actually see the improvements that's happening. Yeah, okay. Um, so, like the Scott, well, the government, the UK government has this um, plan where they need to improve the energy efficiency of homes by 2040. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are pretty poor in terms of you know energy, um, and and what they're kind of looking to do is that they've got. Uh, they've got schemes in with the you know the big six energy suppliers that are doing um, grants and funding available to help you put in double glazing, help yeah. you put in more cavity wall insulation, roof insulation to to kind of boost up. So you've probably seen in your home report the yeah. your home gets like a, a rating basically. Right. So they've got this goal of improving the rating across the board of all houses to use less energy yeah. by twenty forty. Problem being right now is that you you don't really know what's up with your house um, so yeah. we're looking into you know producing a model which then um, allows kind of local uh, governments local housing associations to actually go in and say okay show me uh, all the houses within this postcode that have uh, an energy rating of X and that are losing Y through um, Windows. Yeah. So we're kind of we're capturing all the thermal imaging data, and then we're using machine learning to actually analyze that and pick out uh, where the the key um, you know, heat losses are within the building. And then we're looking at building a kind of commercial model, which then would actually show you, okay, if you spent uh, this much on doing this, you would save this much energy over the long term. Yeah. The whole point. Well, I suppose the nice part about that is because you guys are coming to it from like a product mindset you can actually show a bit of like tangible results quite quickly as well. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if, it, if it all gets up and going, then you can show like the same street, the same postcode yeah. X amount of months later and you can actually see the improvement of it. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of what they don't have right now. They have these schemes, they go in, the, you know, a lot of the, the money's been targeted in areas of social deprivation. Yeah. Um, but it's not saying that that housing stock is actually needing the, the upgrades yeah, okay. um, so if you focused on where it's actually needed first then you'd have kind of a larger impact on it um, so it's, it's an interesting one it's um, 
certainly, you know, in the phase one, uh, what we're kind of doing is we're looking at you know, quite a lot of user engagement, speaking to stakeholders, trying to work out what functionality we need and how best to present the information to them. Yeah. Um, and that's then, if we're lucky enough to go into phase two, we'll kind of run a pilot study. Um, you know, we'll be driving around the streets of Glasgow with a thermal imaging camera. Yes. Uh, yeah, sounds fun. Getting chased about. <laughs> exactly. Um, I suppose longer term, would you maybe, is there uh, opportunity to be kind of using that technology and like when there's people building new builds and even going routes, so as you said, mentioned the kind of government and some of it's in more deprived areas, but just using it more generally as well. So like, not, a, idea, not like yeah. a private consumer, but like when you're getting like the home report and stuff, they could, mm-hmm. you could get more information and like tell yeah. you where the issues are. So that's kind of one of the commercial models we're looking at is yeah. actually being able to, to go onto a site, you know, like Zoopla for instance, yeah. you're looking to buy this home, right? Okay, you can see the the energy report um, yeah. and the home report, but then if you can actually go and see where the heat losses are happening and you know what potentially needs uh, fixed, then at least that way you can you can come in with a, a financial figure of what's actually going to. Ah, is that a quick fix where you just need some insulation or do you need to replace every single window in your yeah. seven bedroom house? Exactly, and it costs you a fortune. Um, and actually, yeah, again, that's one of the things where you're probably not going to make the front pages no. with a heat-saving AI tool, but it's really interesting and it's actually something that most people will probably be able to like get some sort of benefit out of kind of as and when it gets up and running, opposed to like what we already talked about, well, yeah. the kind of cars and all that. And I think we've kind of we've struck a chord with it because a lot of people we're chatting to have kind of says if we can nail this, then it's kind of going to be the the golden bullet of thermography. Um, so I think there's challenges involved in it, but um, yeah, I think that we're we'll run that trial in phase one, and um, we'll then hopefully if we're successful with phase two, scale it up. Are you gonna Are you gonna be on the the back of the car with the camera? Uh, that's that's the plan, yeah. So I mean, because we we'll, we'll kind of look to design a mount for it, basically, yeah. so that uh, we don't need to be driving around. A pickup truck. Uh, Maybe hell, we our arms out the window of the camera. We have you know ten thousand pound thermography camera. On I really it. want to drop that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're going to do that. But um, no, nah, it's interesting because it's you know if, if we can get it working, then we, what we need to look into is the service model of it, you know, can you attach this thing to buses that are always going down the same route? Oh, yeah. you know, can you have this attached onto council vehicles? Um, you know, certain, you know, put on drones and do, you know, surveys with it. There's certain times of the day that you kind of want to do the, the surveying on it. Yeah. Because if you drive by during the day and no one's in, everyone's at work, Aye. then you won't see any heat loss. So yeah. you kind of want to do it around about dinner. Six o'clock like, when everyone's home and exactly. they're Baltic. Yeah. I come to my house, just there'll be constant red on the thermal energy. <laughs> Heating's on all the time. Um, no, it sounds good, and I'm, uh, we'll we'll definitely come back and chat once you get to the kind of like further stages of this and see how it's all going. Um, but no, it's really exciting, and obviously getting on as one of six projects from a couple of hundred is pretty amazing as well. It's good, yeah, and I think the thing as well is it's the timing's great with the kind of COP twenty six being this year in Glasgow. You know, it kind of feels as if it's you know it's on our doorstep. Um, yeah, and I think the the plan is that the three successful uh, companies that are on phase two then may actually uh, have some more exposure around about COP, just kind of showing what's actually being done. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, all right, well, excited to see how that goes. Um, good luck with the Silicon Swally stuff. Um, I need to make it a longer one. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. It's a good night. Most you've got me to craft beer. <laughs> uh, and just thanks for coming on. It's been a blast. Yeah, cheers for having me. 
that was a good one. I really enjoyed chatting to Craig, uh, looking at how AI can impact uh, something like product design and what you have to think about from a user perspective when you're looking at connected devices. So a slightly different background than quite a lot of the guests I've had on so far, but really interesting stuff. Um, I can't wait to see how their climate change project goes. Uh, that could be could be pretty epic. And obviously I'll keep an eye on the, the Silicon Swally events as well. So yeah, it was really fun talking to Craig. Thanks again to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring um, and obviously to you for listening. We'll see you next time.